Enterprise Management 360. Hello, my name is Bob Tarzi, a freelance IT industry analyst, and I will be moderating this EM360 podcast. This is the second of three podcasts looking at the history and the future of endpoint security. In the first podcast, we looked at how we got to know and why traditional endpoint protection techniques such as antivirus are no longer effective. In this second podcast, we will cover what's next for endpoint security. The third podcast will go on to look at how to map endpoint security to a contemporary security strategy. Antivirus focus simply on seeking out known bad files that arrived on endpoints. Attacks are much more sophisticated now, involving many stages, all of which can provide indicators of compromise. These include everything from initial access by the attacker through privilege escalation, execution of malware, lateral movement, exfiltration of data, and communication with command and control servers. Having the means of seeking out these indicators of compromise, measuring the effectiveness of doing so, and improving capabilities through time is the essence of an effective modern endpoint security strategy. To guide us through the complexities of endpoint security, I'm pleased to be joined by Ian McShane, a vice president and endpoint security expert from security vendor Endgame. Ian is also a former analyst from the industry firm Gartner. Ian, in the first podcast, you advocated that both traditional and so-called next-generation antivirus were not up to the challenge of a modern enterprise's security needs. Can you remind us why that is? So next-gen AV tends to be heavily skewed to files, and that's true of traditional AV too. And in most cases, not even the right files, right? We talked about the prevalence of Microsoft Office being used as a, an attack vector. So it's, it's just too heavy on the files, and there's always going to be more threats facing an organization than they can really prevent. And this is actually where this market about five years ago called endpoint detection and response came from. The realization that you cannot prevent everything. So you need to be able to detect and respond to threats that bypass your prevention. So that means you need to ensure your security architecture is designed to prevent or at least detect as much activity as possible. And then an organization can focus their detection and remediation skills on the threats that really do require the involvement of a of a security operations team. So rather than just involving some automated process using antivirus software on a user's endpoint, this actually involves proactive work from security teams that need a broad range of of skills to uh, be able to recognize all these indicators of compromise that we heard about in the introduction. How can this be achieved? Yeah, that's one of the unfair advantages, really, that larger organizations have, is that they can hire, pay for, and keep experienced staff. Whereas a lot of mainstream organizations don't have the luxury of dedicated security teams, right? The security... By, by mainstream organizations, you mean small and medium businesses? The, you know, the, the small well, I mean, not necessarily. This is the, the funny thing is that there are a lot of large organizations that may be relatively security immature. And there are a lot of small organizations that are pretty you know, advanced in their security capability. When I say mainstream, what I usually mean is an organization that has someone that is responsible and accountable for the security function, whether that's at the C-level, whether that's the CISO, whether it's VP of IT, but the organization views uh, information security as critical enough 
that they have someone dedicated to reporting on it and implementing on it as well. The issue with mainstream orgs is that they might have someone accountable for it, but they don't have these vast teams of security analysts that are able to spend their day investigating every incident. Well, well there's two ways around that, aren't there? Aren't there? There's either you have to go and hire that team or you have to work with a third party specialist uh, that provides services because it has those skills. Yeah, usually. I mean, one of the bugbears of the industry is that we try and solve these problems rather than fixing the, the root of the issue by creating new products. Right? So rather than making the security experience easier or more user friendly, we start to see new markets open up. We start to see managed detection and response opening up again, in response to the fact that people can't do this themselves, we start to see vendors selling products labeled as SOAR or security orchestration and response. So trying to automate a lot of the tasks that these vendors are saying are too complex for most organizations. But really what we need to do is focus on the work that's actually being done and the work that needs to be done and the workflow used to achieve those. Okay, we're talking about the staff within the organization or the staff within a third party, or some sort of collaboration between the two, depending on how you set up your security? Yeah, let me give you an example, right? So let's, let's think of a uh, an organization that is collecting as much data as they can and storing it somewhere in a SIM, storing it in, in log files or something. A, a SIM, that's a security information and event management system, yeah? You got it. So they're storing all of this data of everything that's happens on, the, let's say, on their network. Now, you could use that data to search for bad things if you knew what to look for. You could send that data off to someone else to look for bad things, or you could find a way to you know, use intelligence about your network and about adversaries to automatically go through that data and pull out things that look suspicious. So rather than relying on the skills of someone to go and find bad things, you're actually elevating the suspicious and malicious things to the surface and bringing everything into one place rather than expecting everyone to go and do the same boring, repetitive task over and over. Okay, so so what we're really talking about here is you've got this huge amount of data. It gets gathered together in a, in a SIM system, a security information event management system, but you need a layer of capability above that to pull out the events that really mean something and that are a danger to your business. Yeah, it's all about context, right? It's, it's all about providing the right context and helping people understand and quickly triage whether something is suspicious, whether it's malicious and needs a response, or whether it's just the normal activity of their organization. Because at the end of the day, not every organization is the same. There's no one size fits all. So it's it's very much comes down to a lot of local knowledge as well as threat intelligence. Okay, but I mean, I mean, sure, every organization's different, so there's a tailored approach needed for each individual organization. But you can put some generic structure around that, I believe, because you also advocate the use of security frameworks that help security teams to monitor all these indicators of compromise that you know generated uh, and stored in these SIM systems. And you particularly, I think, uh, advocate the a thing called the MITRE attack framework. Can you tell us a bit more about MITRE and a bit more about its attack framework? Absolutely. I mean, many people have heard of MITRE, or at least those that pay attention to vulnerabilities or, or maybe patch management. They'll know MITRE from their CVE database, right? Their common vulnerabilities. From their CVE days? Database. This common vulnerabilities and exposure is what CVE stands for. It's basically a register for known security vulnerabilities. 
So it provides a common way to discuss, to fix, and to attribute vulnerabilities in specific products. So it makes it easy for everyone, every vendor, every practitioner to talk in a common language. And really that's what they're trying to do with um, the TTPs, the tools, the techniques, and the procedures that attackers use. And so they've put together this matrix of techniques that they call attack, right? It stands for adversarial tactics, techniques, and common knowledge. Yeah, I believe it's actually spelled A-T-T ampersand C-K, is that right? Yeah, you got it. That attack matrix is really, it's a knowledge base. And one of the things I really like about it is, well, number one, that it's open source, so it's shareable and usable by everyone. But number two, it's, it's as much an educational tool as it is a vendor tool or a strategy tool. So you can actually look at real world observations on tactics and, and techniques that are being used and kind of educate yourself on well, what does privilege escalation really mean? What does lateral movement really mean? So it's used as a foundation for development, not only of your own skills, but also threat modeling and methodologies, as well as helping vendors like Endgame build secure products and, and provide stronger service to the community. Okay, so uh, Endgame, of course, being the name of your company, and you actually will come on to this, but you actually um, uh, use the attack framework as the basis for your products. But we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. How specifically the MITRE attack framework helps with the problem of endpoint security? Yeah, the good thing about attack is that it's not a binary pass or fail. There's more than one way to skin a cat. And rather than looking at tests that say this product or this capability was able to detect malware, what we're saying is here's a bunch of different ways that organizations can protect themselves against specific aspects of the kill chain. And so they can use those elements to compare what they have today with the relative benefits of any investments that they might make. So they might be looking at their, their own assessment today of what they're covering, and they may be strong in lateral movement. They're strong in lateral movement because they've got strong network capabilities. And then when they're talking to vendors about their next, you know, maybe their next endpoint improvement, maybe their next um, network expansion, they can start to ask vendors, well, what other elements of, of protection are you going to add me? Or are we going to just end up duplicating levels of prevention in one place? So it's built in a way that organizations can choose where they want to prioritize investments based on their threat model and their unique threat model. And so they can also wrap in the mitigating controls that they already have in their environment too. Okay, just to pick up on a couple of terms you use there, you, you, you use the term kill chain. That's basically the opposite of attack chain. So that's how you go about detecting and ending what the attackers are up to. Is that right? Yeah, kill chain just describes the method of, of compromise across the board. And, and we've used this term lateral movement a couple of times. That's basically an attacker gets into a network wherever they can. And then that might not be the most useful place for them to be. So then they attempt to move laterally, escalating privilege and so on. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's basically the way that attackers look through or move through a network, right? But the device they land on is not necessarily going to be the device they're looking for. So one of the first things they try to do is elevate their privileges. So, you know, get, get stronger access to the network and then look to see what assets and, and what data they can actually access in that environment. So going back to the first podcast, we talked about how an attacker persuades a user to open and run a piece of malware on the device. That user's device is then compromised, and then the attacker is going to try and move on to the server where all the credit card data is stored or something like that. Exactly, yeah. Okay. And so finally, uh, Ian, your company, Endgame, has incorporated MITRE ATT&CK into its protections. Is, is that right? How does that work? Can you tell us a bit more about 
your company's approach and how the attack framework has made a difference to the way you address endpoint security. Yeah, we're one of the first adopters of the attack framework here at Endgame. One of the reasons for that is we've got a significant amount of experienced researchers that work at Endgame. And as anyone in any industry will tell you that, you know, it's much easier to have conversations about your work if you're using a common language. And going back to what I said about MITRE earlier, they've done a great job of providing a common way to talk about vulnerabilities by using that CVE database. And they started to do that with the attack matrix, which gives everyone a very clear way to explain things. You know, if you learn about lateral movement, there are hundreds of elements underneath it potentially. But understanding the lateral movement means to move about in a network is a way to make sure that we're being consistent about how we talk about threats, how we identify them, and more importantly, how we can prioritize them as well. So that's generally great for the community and particularly useful to see in the last you know, 12 months that other vendors are starting to jump on that bandwagon as well and start to use the same communication methods by using that attack matrix. In a way, you can think of the attack matrix as being a a standard language for talking about indicators of compromise and you use it end game your customers you uh, encourage them to move across to it other vendors have started using it so it provides a common language for describing and addressing indicators of compromise is, is that right exactly right that's great ian so uh, we've talked about how the attack framework is embedded in your products how it's being more widely adopted in the industry and how that can provide a common language to address the protection of endpoints. The final thing I wanted to ask you about was we talked earlier about the lack of skills that are in some organizations. By using a framework like Attack, that allows you to bring your skills in your organization, and obviously your experts in this area, it's your speciality, allows you to bring those skills to bear on problems of organizations that don't have those skills in-house using this common language. Is that fair to say? There's a bunch of ways that organizations can bolster the capabilities that they have. We already talked about managed detection and response. A lot of organizations already make use of managed services to to deal with things that they can't necessarily cope with themselves. What I would say is that Endgame is focused almost 100% on making that end user experience easy. We want to make sure that we're providing as much information, as much guidance, and as much vendor authority, if you like, to our customers so that they can use the benefit of our knowledge as well as their knowledge to make decisions faster. Okay, great. Well, thanks, Ian, for that insight into uh, the uh, future of endpoint security and the use of things like the MITRE attack framework. We will look in more detail at how endpoint security vendors can make use of security frameworks in the final podcast in this series of three. Thanks to Ian Machine of Endgame for providing this insight into endpoint security and thank you for listening to this em360 podcast first and third podcast in this series about endpoint security are also available on the em360 website thank you for more podcasts like this head to em360tech.com